Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. This is an introduction. This is not intended to get into depth in any particular play. So unfortunately, I won't be reading long speeches. I won't be acting out the blindness of Oedipus, much though you might want to see that. <laughs> I, I certainly won't be taking a part in Lysistrata, because this is about tragedy after all. So uh, what I'm going to do is, we're, we're going to start at the beginning, and we're going to ask some basic questions. And the questions I have are, what is Greek tragedy? How did it all begin? Where were the tragedies performed? Who were the major playwrights? What does a tragedy consist of? What are its aspects? And why did the Greeks write tragedy? And how can we understand them? So I hope you all brought your sleeping bags tonight. <laughs> We're going to uh, I'm going to leave you with some things to think about, but let's just take it from the beginning, see how far we can get. So what is Greek tragedy? I call it a large-scale theatrical production, originally performed during the festival of Dionysus, in which a chorus and two or three actors depict the inevitable demise of a protagonist who is proud and imposing but one who also has a critical blind spot. First, where did it all begin? Greece, <laughs> the Greek-speaking world. But what I wanted to uh, point out, and let's see if the, the pointer actually works here, good, is that we're concentrating here on this area called Attica, related to the word Athens, which is the city of Athena, because all of our tragedies come to us from the festival of Dionysus at Athens. Although there are hundreds of theaters, ancient ruined theaters throughout the Mediterranean, throughout both the Hellenistic-speaking world and the Roman-speaking world as it took it over, we only have these tragedies from this period of classical Greece from the Athenians. Now, the next question is, um, Tragedy. The word means goat song. So why? Well, one clear theory was that the tragic parts were originally played by goats. And this, I can attest to, is, is absolutely true. <laughs> goats, if you, you know, give, <laughs> give them a little hand. I mean, here is a, a, a goat performing the tango. <laughs> They're much more intelligent than you could imagine. Of course, there is another theory, which I do not favor, supported by Aristotle, boo. And he connects the songs and the costumes of Greek drama to a ritualistic procession and a wine harvest festival. And here are some illustrations of the music and the processional positions of persons in a, uh, a wine harvest festival. These festivals occurred maybe as early as very foundation of Greek civilization as we know it, 700 or so. 
in northern Greece. And these particular processions being dedicated to Dionysus, who's a god of the woodlands, is going to filter down gradually into the cities. Now the processions were an integral part of a fertility ritual. They were elaborate. They involved music, hymns to the gods, women carrying baskets, men carrying jugs of water and wine, even men in armor, and then animals to be sacrificed, goats, and men dressed in goatskin costumes as followers of Dionysus. These are the so-called satyrs, and they embody the behaviors associated with the power of the god. Indulgence, drunkenness, revels, and the licensed disorder which follows that. Everything that a Franciscan student is supposed to avoid. So why are we doing this? I don't know. It took me an awfully long time to find visuals for you that were not filled with, you know, satyr paraphernalia. <laughs> Now, the songs for the processions came to be known as dithyrams, and at some unknown point in the 7th or 6th century, the rituals became a fixed festival called the Dionysia, with large choruses of 50 costumed men and boys performing in musical competitions. And here we have a, a player of the aulos or the tibia, which are the, the flutes, some single-piped, some dub, double-piped, and here we have some images uh, representing the god Dionysus with his followers, the satyrs. So they put on costumes in order to perform the songs. And that's approaching the drama. The costumes consisted of this mask with a, um, a figure with a bald head and a beard and pointy ears. And as I said, they dressed also in goatskins. Here we have a satyr who is playing a kind of lyre-like instrument, and then another satyr who's carrying a wine sack. These are the, the accoutrements of the satyrs. And in this uh, image, and these are all images, these are red figure images from the vases of the 5th century mostly, and we are very fortunate to, um, to have this form of art that survives many centuries, so that we know what the imagination was like of the ancient peoples as they thought about their gods, their mythology, and their rituals. Here we have uh, two men who are putting on, donning the costumes of the, the uh, Seder procession. Um, one is putting on a... Um, a head of a, just really a, just a, a satyr's head, but this garment represents a goatskin. Also here, this is a man who's dressed entirely in goatskins with a head that looks more like the chief of all the satyrs, which is Selenos, a fat, drunken follower of Dionysus, who was considered to be his tutor and also to be a lookalike for Socrates. But we won't take, we won't touch on that here. <laughs> Anyway, so this means, uh, uh, at the very least, we have a context for the tragedy, which is religious, mythological, musical, agricultural, and psychological, all these components. Now, where were the tragedies performed? The theaters. 
The religious context of the tragedy meant that the playing space would be adjacent to a temple, and that a priest would preside over the event, and that an altar for offering sacrifices would occupy the stage. The symbolic importance of this setting should not go unnoticed. Temples were massive, structure, massive structures constructed with architects, public funds, and slave labor over many years. And the theaters would likewise be grand scale, enough to hold large crowds traveling great distances to attend the festival, some holding several thousand persons. There were, in fact, two kinds of places where the festivals of Dionysus took place and tragedies were performed. The country and the city. We call them now the rural Dionysia and the city Dionysia. The theaters with the stunning panoramic views are those that, are most, that we're most accustomed to seeing on the coffee table book. There were hundreds of ancient theaters spread across Greece and the Greco-Roman Mediterranean. We have here images of the temple and theater of the famed city of Delphi and that of Epidauros, neither of which is very far from Athens. The expansive views were part and parcel of the experience of spiritual renewal and divine offerings. And then finally, by the way, this was expanded by the Romans. Uh, so originally it was about 14, seated about uh, 14,000, and then the Romans expanded it and it fit 21,000. It's absolutely enormous. And yet, at the same time, when people, teachers, take others on tours, let's, let's arrange for one, okay? Um, someone will go into the center of, this, of, of the circle of the playing space here, the orchestra, as we'll see that it's called, and you'll see that it's speaking at a normal volume like, I am speaking now, you will be able to be heard at any point in the theater. So incredible acoustics. And then finally, we have the Theater of Athens, which is behind the Acropolis, that's the Temple of Athena. And this theater edifice existed behind the playing space here. And thanks to artists and archaeologists, who have recreated for us what it may have looked like. The theater building behind it was sophisticated. The whole theater was sophisticated and elaborate. So we're only going to point here to the most fundamental parts. The orchestra, which is the, this, this circle here, the playing circle in the middle with the altar. The skena, which is the, the main building, which forms the set. And of course, we have scenery. Uh, that's, that's used uh, as well as in future times they're going to build stages which uh, project further into the playing space. And the parados, which are these entrances on the sides. And it just happens to become a word for the first choral song because the chorus is going to uh, come in just like a chorus line and they're going to, uh, you know, come into the circle singing. Now, the greater Dionysia. However, before we turn our attention to that festival, which took place in Athens between the first quarter and the new moon of the month, Elephabolion, or between March 24th and March 28th, the festival was state-funded, organized by a kind of governor who was called an archon, and the large courses were sponsored by benefactors called Koregoi. The tragedies 
were the high point of the festival, which also involved processions and musical competitions. So those very processions that were the origin of it were also part of the festivals. In Athens, three tragedians would write three related plays, each a trilogy, and then with a brief comic play at the end. Later on in the festival, five comic plays would be added to the repertoire. At first, the chorus simply narrated the songs, not, no, I'm sorry, narrated the stories of the plays and song, but beginning around 532, a choral leader, ex-archon, called Thespis is credited with being uh, the first hypocritical impersonator. Oh, that is, he was the first actor, a hypocritos, right? Hypocritos, to step out of the chorus and to play a role, a persona. The actors wore masks, a prosopon, as a sign of their character. And the mask made it easier for them to be identified and heard at a distance, acting as a megaphone. But it also made actors appear larger than life, eerie and somewhat frightful. So this is a reconstruction of what the playing space of the theater in Athens may have looked like. And then here we have a series of images demonstrating actors and their masks. So this is a playwright as he's explaining a part to a boy actor who demonstrates who he is by holding the mask that he will wear. And in fact, this is the mask, an actual mask, of a boy. Most of our understanding of the ancient Greek, the classical civilization of the 5th century, comes from Roman copies in the 1st century BC. So we have a relatively credible source, at least for believing what they may have looked like. But when you see masks like this, then you can understand that the, the faces were at once, you know, horrible as well as practical. And somebody assembled together here an image of many of these masks that have survived to us in a single slide, which gives you a sense of the great variety. Uh, if we had time, we could go and explain who some of these characters are and what roles they would play. And then we have a mask here uh, from Rome, from Hadrian's villa, which is another in mosaic representation of what a, a mask of tragedy and a mask of comedy would look like. And one more, a mask of Zeus, who is obviously playing a silent role. <laughs> okay, so before we get to our next question, I know we have a, a, a question here thrown in. I'm sorry. Yes? Um, would these be used to Oh, no, no, I mean, this was, I guess my, my first point was that the context for the dramas is a religious festival, and it can't be lost. So whatever happens, you have to say that it's got this purpose built into it, and we're, you know, of course, we're not, we're not always sure of how the drama served the religious purpose. And Aristotle, as we'll see, has one particular theory of drama, but it's not particularly integrated into the religious purpose. But that's for you guys to discuss in your classes as you read them. Now, who are the major playwrights? Let's roll through this. We have Aeschylus, who was born around 525, 
and, and died in 456 BC. Uh, we have only uh, seven of his dramas survive, although he had produced somewhere between 70 and 90 tragedies. He introduced, he's known for introducing a second actor. So we're able to have more than monologue, now we have dialogue. Some of his works are called The Persians, um, about Persian, the Persian conquest of Greece, uh, Seven Against Thebes, and the famous Oresteia, which includes Agamemnon, the Libation Bearers, and the Eumenides, about Agamemnon, who was the great king of Achaia, who led the Greek troops to the battle of Troy across the sea. And Prometheus Bound, uh, and we're not quite sure who wrote that one because we can see evidence of another hand in that play. But he won the prize 13 times. And then we have, we have um, Sophocles. I'm sorry, I thought it was on another one. Um, so Aeschylus here, Sophocles. These busts are also Roman copies of Greek originals. You have to watch when you're looking, though, because you may run into a, uh, an artist's rendition of what he thinks Sophocles might have looked like, and you have to make sure you've got a real a Roman copy of a Greek original. So of over a hundred plays, we only have seven of them. Um, he was the one who introduced the third actor, and then his plays uh, include Ajax, a play about uh, Ajax feeling that he was bested by uh, Odysseus, who won the armor in a competition of Achilles and then kills himself. Um, Antigone, a play that you're probably familiar with. Um, Oedipus the king. Electra. Oedipus at Colonus. And a couple of others. Um, he won the first prize over 20 times. So of all the ancient playwrights. Uh, he's the most successful that we know of. He lived to a ripe old age of 90, at which point he was even defending himself in court against accusations against Oedipus at Colonus, one of his last plays. He quoted from the play in order to demonstrate his mental sanity. How's that? <laughs> so finally, we come to the third playwright, Euripides. Now, we have the most of his plays, 18 to 19, of over 90 plays, however many he wrote. It's the most of any. However, uh, he only won the prize about five times. You could call him an unconventional playwright. What he does is he takes the gods and, and legendary heroes, and he puts them in situations of ordinary concerns and problems. So you could say it's a kind of debased heroism. They are extraordinary people, but in ordinary circumstances. All right, so now that we've heard a little bit about them, let's just, in asking the question of what is a Greek tragedy, one way to get to know it, of course, we must experience it in order to understand the fullness of a Greek tragedy. But I thought it would be good to just give you a taste, a small taste of some of the, some of the plots. So Agamemnon, I really shortened them up for you. It enacts the return of the Greek or Achaean king from the Trojan expedition to his palace in the city of Argos. As the play opens, 
A series of fires signal the destruction of Troy, and a watchman tells the king's wife, Clytemnestra, that Agamemnon will soon return. Clytemnestra is not happy. For one, she holds a grudge over her husband's sacrifice of their daughter, Iphigenia, at the beginning of the war, when the launching of the ships relied on appeasing the goddess Artemis. Moreover, Clytemnestra has taken as a lover her cousin, Aegisthus, who himself expects to ascend to the throne of the city. And then a final blow to Clytemnestra comes with the arrival of Agamemnon. He brings home a war bride, Cassandra, who is an enslaved Trojan priestess of Apollo. In her anger, Clytemnestra pretends to welcome Agamemnon while she plots his murder. Professing her love, she orders a carpet of purple robes spread in front of him as he enters the palace. Agamemnon at first refuses coldly, saying that to walk on the carpet would be an act of hubris or arrogant pride toward the gods, a defiance. But Clytemnestra presses him, and he gives in, crossing over the robes, entering into the palace, and you know what will happen next. <laughs> well, Cassandra, a prophetess who has been cursed so that the very truth that she speaks will never be believed, foretells not only Agamemnon's death, but her own death and the revenge of Agamemnon's son, Orestes. After she too enters the palace, the cry of Agamemnon is heard from within. While he was in a bath and coming out of it, uh, Clytemnestra uh, throws and Aegisthus throw a net over him and murder him. What happens in the, on stage is that the doors open and Clytemnestra stands over the bodies of her husband and Cassandra. So in this image you see the net that was cast over Agamemnon and Aegisthus with the sword to kill him. Next, we go to Oedipus. And this is the play that was referred to most by Aristotle in his demonstration, a work called The Poetics. It's about the mythical house of Labdicus and his doomed descendants. It involves a man's struggle against fate and against oracles, which he predicted which the oracles predicted he would kill his father, marry his mother, and have children by incest. Oedipus, king of Thebes, set out to find the person who has caused the plague which is ravishing the land and its people. He's angry. And his bloated self-image is revealed through his contempt for his brother-in-law, Creon, who he sends to the, the oracle to get a message, and for the blind prophet, Tiresias, depicted here, who try to warn him about the oracles. Now, the more Oedipus seeks the identity of the killer, the closer he comes to understanding his own identity and the consequence of actions he has taken long ago. I call this play an ancient whodunit, <laughs> except that here the detective's investigation leaves, leads us back to the detective himself. He is the culprit. He did it. He murdered his father, he slept with his mother, and his daughters are also his sisters, a point which the play makes repeatedly. Without waiting for the gods to rain justice down upon him, Oedipus then gouges out his eyes and casts himself out of the city, an exile. And in the last of our plays here, the Bacchae, a play of Euripides, 
Dionysus takes revenge on the house of Cadmus, which has refused to worship him. When King Pentheus is drawn to behold, in secret, the female worshipers of the god as they dance in a ritualistic frenzy, he is discovered by them and then helplessly torn apart limb from limb. Now I bet you can't wait to, uh, to read these plays and experience them in more gory detail. Yum. Okay. This is also uh, Roman. It just, uh, again, showing how the Romans adopted the, the Greek mythologies, the Greek stories. All right. Now, what does a tragedy consist of and what are its aspects? In each of the plays, a basically good person with a high social standing and a strong sense of self-importance experiences a sudden crisis of circumstances, is caught off his or her guard, and falls from prosperity and dignity to a state of disgrace and ruin. And now I'll just turn your attention briefly to the handouts. Because from here, I don't want to do so much talking and leading you through the handouts, but these are, these are things that I hope that you will be able to take to your classes and apply to the plays as you learn them. So one is called the structure of tragedy, and it gives you five basic parts of the tragedy that you can learn, and I think here um, we see the most overlap. Dr. Almeida would have much to teach us about the musicality and the poetic structure of the drama. So as you read it, remember that the drama was, especially in the choral, in the parts of the chorus, was sung, and that it alternated uh, between the chorus and these moments of dialogue. The moments of dialogue in between the chorus are the episodes. So if you look at your text, unless it's a modernized, boulderized version, you're not going to have scene act one, scene two, you know, and it's not going to delineate the scenes. It'll just kind of bleed from one to the other. In the, uh, the choral songs, which are called stasimons, for stationary song, they are standing and they are singing a song which comments on the episode that has just taken place. Uh, the choruses are represented, uh, representative usually of the citizens of the particular city about which the play is concerned. Citizens of Thebes, for example. And sometimes it may be the elderly of the city, as in the play Agamemnon, because they are the ones who have awaited the return of the king for so long. And then we have the frame of the play in the prologue, which is the initial an initial, um, either a monologue or a dialogue, which indicates the topic of the play in one way, shape, or form. And the, the, the parados, or parod in translation, the entrance song of the chorus, and it's framed then at the end by the exod, exodus at the end. The other handout that I have is Aristotle. And if you wanted to carry this further, right, you would turn to Aristotle and um, you would examine the six elements that he offers. 
Aristotle went to the theater and like the scientific mind that he was, the analytic mind thought of it in its components, thought of it in its parts. To analyze is to break something down into its parts, which we all need to do before we step back and make judgments about it and interpret it. So let me just call your attention to his definition of tragedy. Tragedy is a representation of a serious, complete action which has magnitude in embellished speech with each of its elements used separately in the various parts of the play, represented by people acting, not by narration. So a key difference between the drama and the epic. The epic is mostly narrated and the play is impersonated. Accomplishing by means of pity and terror the catharsis of such emotions. It is that last part of the definition which is the most contestable or the most theoretical because he is the only one who says this, who gives the drama this particular purpose. And um, that's something I think you should all bring to your classes to ask yourself, does the poem evoke these emotions? And what purpose does it fulfill? Am I really cleansed of these emotions when I experience them? You should ask the same question when you read a Shakespeare play. <laughs> about the effect of tragedy. Remember, the, we were talking about the lyric, and that the lyric is a poem of emotion. The emotion through the lyrical poem comes through the voice of a persona who pretends to be the author of the poem, taking on a kind of figure or characterization, letting you into their personal experience. But in the drama, these voices becomes something other than the poet, and they evoke emotion, pathos, strong emotion or strong tragic emotion, from their interaction with each other and their essential tension and conflict. And the effects of, those, of that conflict is then registered by the chorus in those lyrical poems, the odes, that they sing. The other thing I want to call your attention to is plot, because for Aristotle, plot is the most important of all the elements. And he adds to it with these, by analyzing the plot further and telling you why a plot works well or doesn't work well. First, its importance is signified by the fact that our, it's our actions that cause prosperity or misfortune. So that's more important than any of the, than the other components of melody or even of how we speak, diction or eloquence. Some things about this, like a unity of plot. Aristotle felt it were best if you had one plot in one place over a 24-hour period. 
A lot of people try to imitate that structure thinking that Aristotle is being prescriptive or proscriptive. In other words, instead of just describing what he's seeing, he's telling you this is how you should make a tragedy so that it has the best, uh, that it's constructed the best and has the effect that you want. But it may be simply the tragedies that he saw that he was describing how in fact they worked. Now a good plot has peripety. He calls it, it's peripatia in Greek, and there has to be a point at which you are shocked. A point at which you are shocked through the experience of the protagonist. It's Oedipus discovering at that very moment, it's me. I'm the killer. I'm the one who did it. I've been seeking myself all along. So there's a change of fortune, and at the same time, you have Oedipus discovering something about himself. This, for Aristotle, was the most powerful combination. A change in fortune, and at the same time, a self-awareness, a stun, a shock into self-awareness that you have somehow either not foreseen what was going to happen, or perhaps, as Oedipus, you contributed to it yourself. Um, I gave you some, some terms uh, which I think are helpful for you uh, at the end of this handout. Hubris, the excessive pride and defiance of the hero, hamartia, a flaw or an error in judgment. Anagnorisis, that moment of self-discovery, peripatia, the sudden reversal of fortune, pathos, strong emotion, catharsis, purging and cleansing. So I figured let me end with just reviewing in print some of the terms that we used in this presentation. We used goregos, the financial sponsor. These are terms related to dramatic performance. The goregos are financial sponsors of the chorus. The ex-archon is a choral leader. The prosopon are the masks worn by the actors. Cothernoi are the shoes, platform shoes, that were worn by actors. And that's why they couldn't form a kick line, because if they did, those shoes would become, you know, flying weapons, right? <laughs> okay, uh, and then we have terms related to the theater, the orchestra, the open circular playing space near the seating, nearest to the seating, the skena, the building, upstage, serving as a palace to which a platform stage was connected, the parodos, the entrance ways to the playing space, and then the terms related to the drama, you can go to the handout for that, and that's it for this presentation. So thank you very much. I hope you can take this to your classes and enjoy them. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.